So let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Here we go. Uh, as we finish uh, with the Song of Songs, let me go ahead and recap the themes we have been exploring. Um, I think I repeated them on this. Is that on the handout? I think it's, it's on the handout, if not... The, the, yeah, the central theme of the song is the love felt between a man and a woman as they approach and experience their wedding and its consummation. It's about the, the joys and delights of romantic love. The subordinate themes we have already looked at are longing and anticipation, mutual desire, attraction and admiration, and the frustrations of love. Oh, surely not. Today we'll look at the exclusivity of love, the beauty of love, and the power of love. We'll also look at the song's expression of the consummation of romantic marital love, and uh, at the last I'll draw a few conclusions. So the exclusivity of love, um, particularly of romantic love, between a man and a woman is like a thread running throughout the Song of Songs. All these themes interweave. Uh, there is a climax, so to speak, um, in the consummation, the sexual consummation of uh, their romance and marriage, and we'll look at that in a few moments. But there also is this thread of exclusivity that they are for one another and nobody else. Uh, first of all, nowhere in the song do we see even a hint of the lover or his beloved playing the field. This is not a modern romance or a rom-com. Uh, they are committed to one another exclusively. So, of course, our modern ideas of dating were unknown, uh, let alone dating apps. Marriages were most often arranged, and young men and women lived mostly separate lives until they were married. Uh, the motif of wedding and marriage, which I did cover last week, goes from 3.6 to about 4.15. Also expresses the exclusiveness of the relationship, particularly in the historical context of ancient Israel. A couple anticipating their marriage as this man and this woman were would have been betrothed. Um, the betrothal, it would have been by arrangement or agreement or both. The families would have been involved. Betrothal was much more than what an engagement is today. An engagement is just a statement of intention. We're going to get married. Betrothal was much more than what an engagement is today. Betrothal was an agreement to commit to marry, not merely a statement of intention, and it was legally binding. To break a betrothal required divorce, as Joseph considered doing with Mary 
when she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, as it says in Matthew 1, 18, 19. But the angel told him, no, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now, the couple could not consummate their marriage. They couldn't have sexual union until after the marriage. But betrothal meant they were going to be married, and there was a betrothal period. The length of that I am not sure of. Most obviously in the song, there's the, the continual dialogue and the lover of his beloved show two people who believe they belong only to one another and no one else. And if you have ever been in love and ever have a romantic relationship or known anybody, um, you know that they're usually besotted, to use the British term, with one another, and they're not interested in anybody else. And if they are, let's just say it's not true romance. So the beloved three times voices the couple's mutual and undivided longing to one another. This is in 2.16, chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 6, verse 3, and chapter 7, verse 10. And she doesn't say the exact same thing every time. Let me go ahead and read those. 2.16, my lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Now, browses among the lilies is a metaphor for kissing and not, you know, peck on the cheek kind of kissing. Chapter 6, verse 3, I am my lover's and my lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. He kisses me passionately is what it means. And chapter 7, verse 10, I belong to my lover and his desire for me. So in this particular progression, we see a mutuality of feeling and reciprocal devotion. There, there are no others. There will be no others. Um, if, if this were a contemporary pop song, they would be something like, I can't see nobody but you, that kind of thing. Um, Baby, you're the only one for me. But it's much better poetry than modern popular music. And that's actually popular music of 10, 20, 30 years ago. I can't repeat most of the popular music today. Because I don't know it. Slide 94. <laughs> Uh-oh. The beauty of love. Well, the song itself is beautiful poetry. Uh, sometimes it is hard to get past some of the uh, unfamiliar metaphors and symbols. But once you understand them, and I hope I've helped with that, you can see that it is really beautiful lyrical poetry. Um, there was a period in English poetry, well, it was a long period you now, mid-18th century to you know, mid-19th century, where there was a lot of li- li- lyrical love poetry. Um, oh, and even before that, um, I'm thinking of a... Shakespearean sonnet, isn't it? You know, shall I compare thee so, uh, to a summer's day? Uh, thou art altogether more fair. And then, let's see. <clears throat> I can't remember if it was Shelley or Keats. Uh, she walks in beauty like the night. And Robert Burns, I do know, my love's like a red, red rose. And the Song of Songs, of course, is much longer than those. Those were like short, popular songs. Some were longer. Um, 
this is a, a song cycle and probably meant to be sung over a, a period of evenings or perhaps an entire long evening. And it also expresses the beauty of love. The song creates an ambiance. If, if you read it, you can get caught up into it, and that's what good music and good poetry is supposed to do. And that's what psalms do. They don't just give you information. They evoke in you emotions, and they recreate in you an experience. Now, that is meant to be a teaching experience, but... It's not simply to be meant to be conveying information to the cognitive mind. So it expresses this beauty by creating an ambiance of loveliness and lavishness with recurring references, many of them metaphorical, to expensive perfumes and spices, wines, fruits, and delicacies, some of which are unfamiliar to us and some of which we well know, figs, apples, pomegranates, Jewels and finery, flowers, forests, gardens, and various fauna like doves, stags, and things like that. Um, there is a loveliness to the song and in the language that in itself uh, evokes in us a sense of loveliness and beauty and a sense of appreciation for that. And... And this is the appropriate approach to romantic love. The two, lover, the two lovers repeatedly express their delight in one another with words and symbols of gracefulness, beauty, and strength. And this is part of the dialogue that goes back and forth, too. Let me read chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. <coughs> Engedi is a, was an oasis in the southern desert, the desert of Sinai, a place of much growth uh, and beauty. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming, and our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. Uh, and chapter 2, verses 8 through 14 is, is just another example, and there are many. Listen, my lover, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the seasons of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossom, blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Uh, love is a many-splendored thing, which I won't start singing that song either. Um, no, I won't. All of this leads up to the consummation of love. Love is um, a romantic love between a man and a woman, the way God created it. 
is, is meant to be a process, but it leads to a consummation, a sexual union. So following the wedding sequence, which again goes roughly from 3.6 to about 4.15, the marriage is mentioned in other places, but that stretch is meant to be an anticipation and then an expression of the wedding. You don't really get a developed storyline in here, I've mentioned that before, and you don't really get a uh, beginning, middle, and ending, and you don't really get an elaborate wedding ceremony description. But that is the wedding sequence where they talk and anticipate, and finally we hear about the wedding procession leading up to the consummation. And the intimate love of a man and woman is sexually consummated in 4.16 through 5.1. And I'll read that and talk about it a little bit. So the beloved says, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my love come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. The lover I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And at the end of verse 1 in chapter 5, Eat, O friends, and drink. Drink your fill, O lovers. So Solomon here, the author, is describing the delight of sexual intimacy in restrained and tasteful poetic metaphors and symbolic language. So much so that small children would not understand that that's about sexuality, but there isn't any later adolescence or adult who wouldn't get it. There is no crudity or vulgarity, but a subtle and understated eroticism. And I didn't even want to say eroticism, but I couldn't find another word for it. Um, so I went ahead and used it. But, but it is very subtle and understated, un- understood in the proper sense, in the proper place. Uh, the term erotic, focused on marital love, is appropriate in some sense. And it is focusing on genuine romance and loving intimacy. And, and that's what romance is not meant to be... Um, <coughs> fluffery or an accessory. It really is something that God, in effect, approves of. Say he created would also be appropriate because he did create men and women and he wanted one to delight in the other in an exclusive way. And so there is such a thing as true romance. So here in this sexual consummation... Uh, this is this is truly focusing on genuine romance and loving intimacy. Uh, that last part of five one: eat, O friends, and drink. Drink your fill, O lovers. In the NIV, it it says it's the friends that are saying this, and so it starts to come across as an odd form of voyeurism, but but it isn't. It really isn't the friends. Um, the, if whatever Bible you have, most modern translations are going to put uh, lover and beloved or man and woman and then friends or daughters of Jerusalem, and they're going to demarcate them 
section by section so that modern readers can have some clarity about over who is speaking. The designation friends here is probably wrong. I'll say probably. Um, it is as though the author, Solomon, has now turned to us and given, according to Tom Gledhill's words, quote, an affirmation of the lover's activity. What they are doing is good, wholesome, right, and proper. Nobody's watching them in the, in the action of the story, such as the story is. This is the author of the poem saying, this is good and right and delightful in its proper place. Solomon's turns to his listeners or readers, us, and tells them that romance has its appropriate and delightful fulfillment. Sex isn't, isn't odd, and it's nothing to be ashamed of in its proper place. Um, uh, just as an aside, the, the reason Paul and Moses, Yahweh, in Leviticus, and Paul in many of his letters, will talk about uh, being very careful with human sexuality is, uh, in a sense, uh, due to the next thing I'm going to talk about, uh, which is the power of love. And it's not that there's anything wrong with it. It's that it is such a powerful thing that to use it wrongly can cause damage. And as we know, it can cause lots of damage. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. Okay. <laughs> okay. The power of love. Both the man and the woman directly express the strong influence over their feelings that the other has. Uh, and again, you know this is true uh, if you've ever been in a romantic relationship. For example, in chapter 4, verse 9, You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. In chapter 5, verse 8, the beloved speaks of this sway of love. O daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. And, and the words there in Hebrew are really closer to I'm sick with love, but of course, love sickness, you know, that can have somewhat negative connotations, but... This is, she is so caught up in this that this describes the conditions of her whole being. I am faint with love. I am overcome with love. And then again in chapter 6, verse 5, the lover speaks again. You are beautiful, my darling. Turn your eyes away from me. They overwhelm me. Um, so in one sense... Uh, especially some of the older ones that I can think of, the, the human propensity to love love songs is entirely appropriate, as long as the songs are entirely appropriate. So the, the power of romantic attraction between the two is also shown through the song by the regular intimate dialogue between the two, as I've mentioned before. Uh, in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, 
This is sort of like the, the, the literary climax or the lyrical climax. The beloved gives voice to Solomon's climactic statement of romantic marital, marital love as the most powerful of human experiences. Uh, let me read that. Chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love... For love is as strong as death, its jealousy as unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned, or as the Beatles put it, can't buy me love. The jealousy here, by the way, where it says uh, jealous, and which should probably be translated passion, just to not create any understanding. The jealousy in Hebrew can be a proper sense as well as an improper sense. So the jealousy here is like that of the Lord in Exodus 19, 4 through 5, where it says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That doesn't mean he's suspicious, paranoid, um, over-controlling and kind of creepy. It's a jealousy not of fear, but of fierce loyalty, of exclusive mutual devotion that allows no rivals. In other words, the, the lovers are jealous between one another, not that they suspect the other, but that they deliberately exclude others and that they hold themselves only for each other. That's what it means. Love's passion or jealousy is unyielding as the grave. So just as the grave lets no one go whom it has, you know, this is before Jesus Christ, remember. So love will not let anybody go. <laughs> Half the movies ever made or have that theme somewhere in them. Love has the power to affect our emotions like no other human experience. Now, here we are talking about romantic love. And I'll just expand it. Of course, this is true of, of, of any type of love, but just particularly so of romantic love. And, of course, a love between a man and a woman was, we could say, the first created love. Um, I think... Um, Adam had affection for the animals he named. Um, part of the reason, though, that God gave him that job was not because he wanted uh, Adam to be a biologist or engage in taxonomy. He needed to go through all the other animals to realize that good creation as they were, they really weren't his companions or partners in the fullest sense. He needed to know that before he was ready to have a romantic partner in Eve. Um, love has the power to affect our emotions like no other human experience. It has the power to draw us out of ourselves. We tend to be, uh, as the Latin phrase says, in curvatus and say, turned in upon ourselves. It has the power to draw us out. Now, that love between a man and a woman, like anything else, can be twisted and broken and disordered by sin. So still, 
It does has power to draw us out of ourselves. It has the power to bind us to one another, willingly bind us to one another in joyful devotion. Let me finish by saying, as I said in the introduction, the Song of Solomon is not an allegory. So I'll say it again. The Song of Solomon is not an allegory. There's even attempt, I read some of the more contemporary literature. I mean, for a hundred years or more, uh, more than a hundred years, the allegorical interpretation has been dismissed, I think rightly so, but it seems to be making a comeback in some circles because I don't know why. Um, Perhaps some pastors, churches, rabbis too, it is part of the Hebrew scriptures, are you know, embarrassed by a, a, a long song that talks delightfully and expressively about human sexuality. Um, but it's a good gift of God, so it is not allegorical. It really is a love song about true romance and the delight of sexual intimacy in its proper place. Um, marriage and exclusivity between one man and one woman permeate this book. And sexuality in its proper place is joyful, not shameful. But sexuality uh, isn't really sacramental either. So not in a well-divine sense of that word anyway. It is, it is not uh, an outward sign of an invisible grace. It is what it is. Uh, it is an expression of love, but it's delightful in itself. Sex does not have the capacity in and of itself to lift us to spiritual transcendence. Uh, and as Dwayne Garrett, I've, I've mentioned him before, he's an Old Testament scholar out at Southern. He puts this very aptly. Sexuality falls into its greatest perversion and excess when it is mythologized and given cosmic significance. For evidence of this, he says, one need look no farther than the Mesopotamian and Canaanite texts. And as a matter of fact, all the ancient Near Eastern texts, the, the world existed in those cosmogenies, birth of the cosmos, basically by sex between the gods. There were variations, but that's how it came to be. And uh, (coughs) sacred prostitution, uh, the belief that somehow having sex in a ritual place somehow imitated what the gods did and ensured fertility of the land and of the population. That's what happens. Uh, And then, of course, uh, more to our contemporary situation, um, the results of unrestrained sexuality, which is lots of children, was taken care of by sacrificing children. So sacrificing children to Moloch was a common thing and something uh, condemned by God and condemned when the Israelites took it up as an abomination. Elsewhere, Garrett adds that sexual language should not be brought into the vocabulary of worship and devotion. I heartily agree with that, and I would add theology to that list. God is not sexed or gendered. Yes, we say he because those are the pronouns in the Bible, so those are God's pronouns. Um, But they're obviously a convenience. God, yes, Jesus is a male. But Jesus in his human uh, nature is male. But the eternal son of God is not sexed or gendered. Don't, we will digress greatly if you 
wanting into an explanation of uh, the hypostatic union of uh, Christ's human and divine natures in the incarnation. So we won't go there for now. God is not sexed or gendered. And to ascribe sexuality to God or describe him with sexual terms in any way, that approaches blasphemy. So there is one thing beyond itself and its own delight that true romance and sexual intimacy can be is a reminder uh, of what the heart of existence is. I used to, I cannot remember at which doctrine we discussed this, but in the discussion of Christian doctrine with high school students, I would simply pause and say, well, think about it right now. What do you think really is the meaning of life? What is the heart of existence what is this all about? What do we really want? Is it, is it money? No, no. That's, people who want money usually want something else by the money. Is it fame? No, not, that's never an end in itself. So what is it? What is at the heart of existence? And I could usually tease it out of them because there is one obvious answer if you look honestly at what we want, who we are, and look at what we're doing. What is it that we find to give real true meaning in life? Anybody want to answer that question? Enjoyment. Enjoyment. No. Well, I'm not going to say we shouldn't have fun, but what we're looking for. So enjoyment all by yourself. I mean, enjoyment of God's gifts. Okay. Just all by yourself. Love. What does love require? Other people. So there you go. I would usually stretch it out a little while longer to make the point. But the heart of existence is relationship and love. Well, I'm loath to bring up Trinitarian thoughts, but as a matter of fact, that's exactly what God is. God is an eternal relationship and love. That is the heart of existence. So don't want to connect that with... There's no necessary connection between that and sexuality, just so you know. But it can be one reminder among others, and a a romantic uh, relationship is not necessary to have a delightful and joyful relationship with God. But a good romantic relationship, particularly one fulfilled in marriage can be one reminder that the heart of existence is relationship and love. The best sex is never just physical. It is emotional and psychological. The best sex is not merely casual or just recreational. If you're only in it for your own pleasure, you're, you're really missing the point. It needs to take place within a deeply committed relationship. And the love of true romance is not frivolous. It is as strong as death. Its passion as unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. And that is the power of love. So does anybody have any questions about the power of love or anything else in the Song of Solomon at this point? Are we at the end? We're at the end of Song of Solomon. Next week, we'll wrap up with conclusions about... I I will summarize all of wisdom literature in 45 minutes. No, not really. I'll just...
come to some conclusions about why we should all study wisdom literature and keep reading Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Anybody have any questions? Or were we? Yeah, yeah, five minutes. Oh, we got a few minutes. I've got a question that okay. could be answered by me just going home this afternoon and Looking thoroughly it up. reading through the text. Okay. But you're here, so I'll ask you <laughs> okay. instead. Um, is, you're is assuming there... I've read thoroughly through the text. <laughs> I have. I think I've three, four, five times preparing this. So just what? Is there not a verse in Song of Solomon that talks about, maybe it's, maybe it's the woman, the bride, saying, like, all the other ladies... Like have eyes for my guy. Yes. Yeah, there is. Um, actually, she says it more than once. Let me see if I can find. Oh, well, here's the first one. Um, let him, chapter one, verse two. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. He's talking about uh, her lover, and then in verse four, <coughs> how right they are to adore you. Um, and that's the first one. And there are others, so, yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure the other way, too, right? There's uh, men who adore her. Or that doesn't really come across. The, the song, interestingly enough, is mainly from the perspective. It, you get the idea that the perspective is the woman's. Now, ultimately, we're aware that the author is a man, but the perspective is the woman's. And even even... We seem to be looking at things through the woman's eyes, and then what the man says, the lover seems to be reportage. Uh, I'm being a little prosaic in the term here. It is a poem, but and that shifts back and forth. Remember, this is this is not a drama, and, and it's not a narrative straight through. So, you know, try and analyze you know your favorite love song, and you'll come up with some of the same difficulties. But yes, my guy is the best guy. And every, every woman should feel that way about her man. And he doesn't really say it but in so many words, but it's clear that for the lover, his beloved is the best woman in the world. Uh, there's actually a song, who was it? Uh, J.D. Souser. Um, you are every woman in the world to me. Well, that's... That could be thought of inappropriately. In other words, you're, you're like the only one I need. Anyway, any other questions, comments? Yes, Colleen. Oh, well, the allegorical interpretation was for literally thousands of years, both for Jews and Christians. The the considered valid interpretation. For Israelites, it was uh, a, an allegory of Yahweh's love for Israel, for Christians, of Christ's love for the church. Um, but it, 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 it isn't. Well, so it's, is it, I know it's settled in your mind, but <laughs> is, is it, is this something that's accepted as... Like I said, for, for since... This is, this is one of the developments in higher scholarship of the 
uh, from the late 18th century till now that I agree with, um, that, that looked at it carefully. Yeah, I'm agreeing with Old Testament scholars. It's not my specialty. But virtually all, you know, it, it's true. There's some Old Testament scholars that I would hardly disagree with, and then there's some that I hardly agree with, and then there's some in the middle. Uh, all of them say, well, it's, it's not an allegory because it doesn't look like an allegory. It doesn't smell like an allegory. It doesn't quack like an allegory. And, so and Solomon never said it was an allegory, so it's not an allegory. So my question is because reading Spurgeon, he takes it as, you know, a relationship with Christ. And I, some things I really enjoyed that interpretation it made, like, because it expressed, like, a love thing. Would I be wrong in enjoying that? <laughs> Well, Colleen, the only thing I'll say, there is a difference between, uh, and I'm not counseling wrong interpretations of Scripture. I'm saying there's a difference between determining, okay, what does Solomon intend by this? What does God intend by this? And how do we use it devotionally? Most of the uh, greeting cards, uh, internet memes, and, and other places where you see verses of uh, Song of Solomon are going to be reflecting somehow uh, the human love for God or God's love for humans in a generic or personal specific sense. I'm not necessarily going to say that devotion is wrong. Um, although devotion can go askew sometimes. And, and again, um, you have to be really careful. I, I will say one more thing. I, you have to be really careful when you're, again talking about human sexuality and your understanding of God. Um, but as a matter of fact, God created sex. That says something about God. God created romance. That says something about who God is. Um, and I tried to touch on that a little bit. Uh, God is not sexed. God himself does not have sexuality. That Neither do angels. Uh, that's particularly to... You know, animal species, and particularly to human beings, but it was God who created it, and it does take place within the context of love. So again, that says something about God, but it doesn't say he's sexual. That's that's all. Um, but so when I read the Song of Songs, my my area is theology. So I think, well, what what does this scripture say about who God is. Don't want to take it completely out of context, but I think it says something, and one of the things is that the heart of existence is relationship and love, and, and human romantic love is one thing that reminds us of that. Did that help? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and if you know anything about subdisciplines in theology, no, uh, theology is the science of hair splitting. So.
anything that was going to take her on that path is probably not going to be thirsty. Well, again, I'm not going to say that there's something wrong about a personal devotional understanding as you read it. The same thing happens in Psalms, too. Some Psalms, uh, in popular thought, don't mean exactly what they are said to mean. Johnny, did you? Yeah, it's time to go if you have kids. How are breasts like gazelles? What? (laughs) I said, how are breasts like gazelles? Graceful and lovely, I don't, you know. That's just I'm not an expert on Hebrew poetry. Finally, getting down to the meat. Yeah. And, uh, I did. I did actually research, gaz- like well, like two fawns of a gazelle, not yeah. just the gazelle. Um, now the man is compared to a gazelle too, and I thought, well, that's interesting. I know gazelles run fast. You saw that was a picture of an actual Thompson's gazelle. One of the very few animals that um, can outrun a cheetah. Um, cheetahs can actually have a higher top speed, but they can only sustain it for very short bursts. All right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll conclude with that. Uh, cut that off after Colleen's question and the answer. Okay? See you guys later.